that they named Peckerhead. <laughs> I attended a conference last Saturday night where there was a priest from California, and he originally was from England, and he was comparing some of the words that the English use in England and the words that we use here and how we have different meanings for them even though they might be the same word. And the word pecker was one of them. And he said over here we have a certain meaning for the word pecker. But he said in England it means to keep your nose up. And he said the vicar was heard to say to the bishop, keep your pecker up. <laughs> One of the sisters says, I hope he does. <laughs> we heard Tina this morning, and I'm like Barbara. I've known Tina for years. I didn't know she was a black-robed, uh, bubble-bath sex maniac until today. She kept talking about that old hairy-chested boy, and she never did introduce him. I'm going to introduce him to you tonight. Bill, stand up, will you? <laughs> I've had the privilege of knowing them for a long time. It's a great privilege to see them and be with Tina on the same program. We listened to Dick today. Dick is like I am. He said he had one eye he could hardly see out of, and I have too. There's always been a saying amongst two-fisted drinking people, crap or get off the pot. Dick and I just closed one eye and farted most of the time. <laughs> always tell an old oil field man anyhow. Can't tell him much, but you can tell him. <laughs> Tomorrow morning you're going to hear from another man of the cloth, Larry. I've always felt sorry for Larry. Years ago they put him in a home for unwed fathers. <laughs> He's been there ever since. Then tomorrow morning you're going to get to see Mary Pearl. Uh, Mary Pearl, something else. We've known Mary Pearl a long time. Down in our part of the country, when the Alamans get their lives straightened out, and the alcoholics get sober, and we all get cleaned up, you can hardly tell us apart. So Mary Pearl developed a special Alamon handshake that they use in Arkansas to identify each other. It goes something like this. <laughs> and I've seen it a thousand times. I love Mary Pearl. She's been in my prayers every day for years. <laughs> I thank God every morning that she's married to J.D. and not to me. <laughs> 
<laughs> She'll get me in the morning. <laughs> My name is Charlie Farmer, and I am a very grateful recovering alcoholic. By the grace of God, because I'm a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, by the grace of that power that I found in the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found necessary to take a drink for 7,122 days today, one day at a time, and for this I'm very grateful. Uh, before Dick hurts his brain on that, that was 1969 also, Dick. That was a good year, a very vintage year for people like us. I'd like to thank the committee for letting Barbara and I be here. This is our great pleasure. I have a friend who lives in Little Rock. Most of you know him. His name is Joe. Joe's black. Joe and I have been known here recently, I suppose. I hear it's being talked about as AA fundamentalist. Now, I'm not sure what an AA fundamentalist is, but it's to, if it's to love the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, then probably I'm an AA fundamentalist. If it's to love the big book Alcoholics Anonymous and the message contained therein with all your heart, then I suspect I'm an AA fundamentalist. If it's to love your God as you understand him with all your heart and all your soul, then I suspect I'm an AA fundamentalist. Because you see, those three things are the reason that I'm standing here tonight. If it had not been for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would never have found this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And if I hadn't found that book, I would not have found that message contained in it, which led me to my God as I understand him. And whatever I say tonight, however I talk tonight, I don't really know what I'm going to do. I'd like to have it revolve primarily around those three things. Because this is the 50th year for the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think we all need to remind ourselves once in a while that in 1939, this great fellowship, which today probably has a minimum of a million and a half people in it worldwide, had only 100 people in 1939. And I think we must remind ourselves that those 100 people had no name. They had been going to a group of people called the Oxford Groups. The Oxford Groupers did not particularly like the alcoholics because we tend to tell dirty jokes and we cuss and we smoke cigarettes and sometimes we stomp them out on the floor and we spill coffee. And the Oxford Groupers were not too crazy about us nor were we too crazy about the Oxford Groupers. They were a bunch of people who were first century Christian fundamentalists, and they loved to speak about the Lord, and they loved to talk about Jesus Christ, and they didn't like to hear anybody cuss, and they didn't like to tell dirty jokes, and we were not too crazy about them either. 
The first 100 people in Alcoholics Anonymous were at times called the drunk squads of the Oxford groups. But in 1939, we had no name. In 1939, we produced a book. The first 100 did. And they named their book Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody today is really sure where that name came from. We think probably out of Cleveland, probably from a fellow named Clarence, who said, we are alcoholics. We want to remain anonymous. Why don't we name our book Alcoholics Anonymous? Thank God Bill Wilson didn't have his way in the beginning. Bill wanted to name it the BW Movement. <laughs> Some others wanted to name it the First 100 Men. And a little lady said, you can't do that. She was the first one in AA. And they settled on the name Alcoholics Anonymous. Now that group of 100 people took their name from the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And they began to call themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would remind you again tonight that the first Alcoholics Anonymous was a book. The second Alcoholics Anonymous was a fellowship of people who took their name from the book. In 1939, the program in the book, which told precisely how those first 100 had recovered from the disease of alcoholism, was the same as the program in the fellowship. Naturally, it would be because the fellowship wrote the book. Now, the program in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous has never been changed. Through a second edition and through a third edition, the first 164 pages of the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, which contains the program of recovery, has never been changed. The program in the fellowship has changed. People tend to change things. Somewhere down the line, we people in AA begin to get the idea that we could do anything we wanted to do and still be able to recover from the disease of alcoholism. Somewhere down the line, we begin to get the idea that everybody can work the program any way they want to and still be able to recover from the disease of alcoholism. And somewhere down the line, we begin to treat our program as a cafeteria. And we begin to take some and we began to leave some, and we thought we could recover from the disease of alcoholism that way. Somewhere down the line, somebody said, if you'll go to 90 meetings in 90 days, you can recover from the disease of alcoholism. And somebody said, if you bring the body long enough, the mind will follow, and you can recover. And somebody said, if you come to enough meetings, you'll soak it up by osmosis and you can recover from the disease of alcoholism. None of those statements are in the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. The program and the fellowship began to follow those statements because we felt that was an easier, softer way. And if you just come to 90 meetings in 90 days, if you just bring the body, 
If you take some and leave some, you're not following the program in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I know that there's only one requirement for membership in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's a desire to stop drinking. None of us can force anybody to do anything, and thank God that's true. You know, you can come to an AA meeting and you can say, I don't like you people at all. And you can say, I can barely stand your lousy 12 steps, and I can't even drink your old coffee. But I'm going to be a member of this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous because I've got a desire to stay sober. And nobody can say anything about that at all. You know, you don't even have to be sober to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It helps if you are, but you don't really have to be. But you see, that deals with the fellowship. And this book that we're celebrating this year, the book that I have here with me, the book that you see up on the wall, has nothing to do with the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And somewhere in AA some years ago, I think we made a serious mistake. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous made their first appearance for the world in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Somewhere down the line, we thought it would be nice to take those 12 steps out of the big book, put them on little cards that'll fit into your shirt pocket, or that'll fit into your wallet or purse, put them on wall posters and hang them on the wall. And today, I'm not sure that's a bad idea, but the mistake that we made was when we took the 12 steps out of the big book and put them on the card and on the wall, we left the directions on how to work them in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. And today we come to a meeting and we see the steps on the wall and we read them and we interpret them in our mind and we try to work them based on our interpretation of them. And the only directions on working the steps are in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. There's never been another book written with instructions on how to work the steps. Now we know in 1952, Bill Wilson wrote the 12 and 12. And Bill wrote the 12 and 12 in an attempt to further explain the steps and also as a vehicle to carry the 12 traditions. And I think there's some information in the 12 and 12 that is absolutely brilliant. But there's one thing wrong with the 12 and 12. It does not tell you how to work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And people love the 12 and 12, and I think the reason they do is because they can get in it and they can dance around in it forever and never have to do anything at all. If you're gonna use the big book, it pins you down and it tells you why you need to work a step, how to work that step, and what the results will be when you're through with that step. And there's not another piece of AA literature that does that. The Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous contains to me the most important promise that could ever be made to any human being in the world and especially we who have been defeated by alcohol. The first part of step 12 says, 
having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And it promises me that if I will put the first 11 in my life to the best of my ability as the first 100 did, not the way I want to, or not the way he wants to, or not the way she did, but as the first 100 did, then I can have a spiritual awakening. And what is a spiritual awakening? There's only one piece of literature that AA has that tells you what a spiritual awakening it is. And it is found in Appendix 2, page 569, of the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. And there it talks about a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening being the real solution to the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous, or to, to the disease of alcoholism. And it tells us that a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening is nothing more than a personality change sufficient to recover from our disease. And it says one's fast, and in that case it's a spiritual experience, and the other one is slow, and it occurs over a period of time, and in that case it's a spiritual awakening. But it says either one will bring certain results. And it says if we will practice this program, someday we will become aware of the fact that we have tapped an unsuspected inner resource of strength that we will presently identify as a power greater than ourselves for God as we understand it. And I think that's the finest piece of information that any human being in the world who's been absolutely defeated can possibly find. The Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous, written by those first 100 people, having remained unchanged for 50 years, carries the same message today that it carried 50 years ago. How do you recover from the disease of alcoholism? Now, young people tell me today, Charlie, you do not understand. Times have changed. And I say I'm fully aware of that. But I know that this is 1989, and I know that the big book was written in 1939. And they say, Charlie, you don't understand. Places have changed. And I say, yes, I understand that. I understand that the first 100 people were all in the northeastern part of the United States. And today, our million and a half covers the entire world. And they say, but you don't understand. People have changed. And I say, yes, I know that. The first 100 are all dead, and we million and a half are different people than they were. But then I answer them back and I say, let me tell you of one thing that you don't understand. And that is that the big book Alcoholics Anonymous deals with human nature, and human nature never changes. It is the same today that it was 2,000 years ago. Alcoholism never changes. It's the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. They still put us in jailhouses. They still put us in hospitals. 
They still drag us through divorce courts. And if you'll read your Bible, you'll find they were doing that 2,000 years ago also. And then I say to them, since human nature does not change, and since alcoholism does not change, then surely it stands to reason that the recovery from alcoholism would not change either. And the recovery in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous is the same today as it was 50 years ago. Now, nobody can make us use it, and many of us will not use it, but some of us are very fortunate. Some of us have found that if we will use it, we can get exactly what the first 100 got, and that's recovery from our disease of alcoholism. When I came to you, I was a very sick individual. I'd been drinking alcohol 26 years, and I'm like Dick. There's no sense in me talking about drinking because you all know how to drink. And I'd been drinking it for 26 years. I'd gone through two wives. I'd gone through a fine job. I was in the process of losing four wonderful children. I was in the process of losing everything that I held near and dear to me, including my self-respect. And they didn't like me. And I didn't much give a damn whether I lived or died. And through this fellowship, I found a new way of living. Bill Wilson tells us in the 12 and 12, there's as many different spiritual experiences and awakenings as there are people in AA, but he says they all have certain things in common. And that he says that is that we are able to feel, believe, and do things we've never before been able to do on our own strength unaided. I'm happy to tell you tonight that I feel things I never felt before. I feel true love. I'm like Barbara, I always had love mixed up with coming in heat. Never in understood what it was. It had to have sex involved in it. Today I know that isn't true. True love is understanding, compassion, tolerance, patience, and goodwill towards your fellow man. I feel some of that today. And I'll guarantee you 19 and a half years ago I didn't feel it. I could care less for you or any other human being. Yeah, you could have some, but only after I got mine first. And if you get in my way, look out, because something bad's going to happen. I believe things today I never believed before. I believe this God, as I understand him, is a kind and a loving God. And I believe he stands ready to help any human being in the world any time they ask him for help and return to him and try to give self-will back to him. I didn't believe that before AA. Nineteen and a half years ago, God was a punishing God. It sends you to hell for lying, cheating, stealing, drinking whiskey, and committing adultery. And I had a minimum of 26 years of doing that. And I knew God had already told St. Peter when that little four-eyed sucker gets up here, send him downstairs. We don't need his kind. You see, my God, 19 and a half years ago, was a punishing God. Today, I don't believe that God needs to punish us. I think we do a reasonably good job of that ourselves. I think God is a kind and a loving God. 
My God before was a God of justice. Today he's a God of mercy. Thank God he is not a God of justice. Or I wouldn't be standing before you tonight. I can do things that I could never do before. On my own strength unaided. By golly, I can stay sober. I never could do that before AA. Nineteen and a half years ago, I was a drunken bum. Because of the fact that I can stay sober today, I can do many, many things that I could never do before. And all of these came about in my life because I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. Some of the people in AA had what I wanted. They had bright eyes, they had smiling faces, and they had hands that stuck out and shook your hand, and they seemed to always be happy. I had never been happy and sober in my life. The only time I'd ever been happy is when I was drinking. And then when alcohol turned against me, it destroyed me, and I couldn't be happy that way anymore. And I wanted to be happy. And you had it. And I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. About 20 years ago, as Barbara told you, we'd been going through some divorce proceedings. She had learned that if she filed for divorce, that that would cause me to stop drinking. And the reason it really would is because when she would file for divorce, the lawyer would tell her to go get the money out of the bank before they deliver the papers, because if you don't, he'll get it and he'll be gone. And she would always get the money out of the bank, and then I would find out about the divorce. And I would be left high and dry, no money to drink on, no money to pay bills on, no money to do anything on. So naturally, I would sneak into the house and take a shower and shave and clean up and put sweet smell them on and say, Barbara, you really don't understand what you're doing. You really don't understand what you're about to lose. How are you and these children going to make a living without me? And if you will drop those divorce proceedings and put the money back in the bank, <laughs> then I'll stop drinking. And she did it. And some months later, as she told you, I started drinking again. And she filed for divorce again, and she got the money out of the bank first. And I did the only thing that any self-respecting alcoholic could do, is sneak in the house and take a bath and shave, <laughs> and put on the sweet smell, and talk her into dropping the divorce and putting the money in the bank. Now, I don't know what it is I've got, but apparently she was willing to go to any lengths to get it. <laughs> because it worked twice for me. <laughs> Then she told you about beginning to get ready to go to Al-Anon. She told you about the little discussion we had, quite a discussion we had. And she told you about calling Al-Anon and telling them that she was not going to come back or she wasn't going to go. What she neglected to tell you was at that time, just before I had gotten drunk, 
He said, I had gone to the bank, and I had gotten all the money out. I'm a slow learner, but I do learn. Then she went to Aladon and found out about the disease, and she called me the next day and asked me if I would like to come home. I've always given Aladon credit for that. But I think the fact that I had the money in my pocket had something to do with it, too. <laughs> and before I make any mistakes about my opinion about Al-Anon, I'm going to say to you that I think Al-Anon is the finest thing that ever came down the road, and it's the best thing ever happened to Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, if it hadn't been for Al-Anon, we wouldn't be married today. If it hadn't been for Al-Anon, I may not be alive. If it hadn't been for Al-Anon, I may not even be sober. Barbara became much easier for me to live with when she started going to Al-Anon. She got off my back. She let me drink. She left me alone. And thank God she let me reach my bottom. And I think that's one of the greatest things that can happen to an alcoholic, is to finally reach bottom. After she'd been going to Al-Anon for some time, I decided I'd go to AA. Now, I didn't decide to go to AA because I wanted to. Mainly, it was to keep peace in the family. To let Barbara, Barbara know I was trying to do something about my drinking. And even though she left me alone during that period of time, she would leave little pamphlets laying around the house where I could find them and read them. I wouldn't look at them while she was there, but when she left, I would pick them up and read them, and I began to see some things in there that, that seemed to be quite familiar in my life. I know one morning I started to get my cereal out and eat some breakfast, and I poured out the bran flakes, and out came a little pamphlet that said, so you think you're different. Another morning, I went to the bathroom and sat on the stool, and I reached over and tore off some toilet paper to wipe myself, and the 44 questions fell out of that roll of toilet paper. <laughs> so even though she left me alone, she left me those gentle reminders. And one day she said, Charlie, my sponsor in Illinois is a lady named Wanda, and said, her husband is named Floyd, and he's a member of AA, and said, would you be willing to talk to him if he would come over here? And I said, yes. Primarily, again, to keep peace in the family. Floyd and Wanda came to see us, and Barbara and Wanda got in the car and left. And Floyd and I sat down in my kitchen, and Floyd did something that evening for me that no other human being had ever been able to do before. Floyd sat down in my kitchen and told me about his alcoholism. And everybody else that had ever talked to me about alcoholism had talked to me about my alcoholism. Floyd didn't do that. He talked to me about his alcoholism. And he talked to me about what he had to do in order to recover and not drink alcohol. He seemed to care very little about mine, but he was sure as hell interested in talking to me about his. And Floyd asked me if I would be willing to go to an AA meeting, and I said yes.
And Floyd took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, God works in very, very mysterious ways. I've been sober 19 and a half years. My friend Floyd has never been able to get any sobriety. He lasts 30 days or 60 or 90. One day I made up my mind after being sober four or five years that I'd sober Floyd up. And Floyd and I went to an AA meeting every night for 365 days and he didn't drink. And the night of his birthday I got to give him his lighter. And he cried and I cried. And a week later Floyd was drunk again. And Floyd drinks and he gets all the way down and he calls me and he asks me to come and help him. And I go help Floyd and we shave him and we clean him up and we put him in the hospital. And then the next day I go to visit him. And I sit down by the side of his bed. And I tell him about my disease of alcoholism. And I tell him what I have to do in order to stay sober and recover from my disease. And I invite Floyd to go in an AA meeting with me. Today my friend Floyd is a wet brain. Today he's a hopeless cripple. But he took me to my first day meeting. You see, we never know why. We never know who. We never know who's going to reach bottom and when they're going to do it. And we never know which one's going to work the program and which one isn't. Because this is God's business. God decides when we sober up, and God decides when we recover from our disease. My God, as I understand him, has always worked with people through people. I am convinced that in the 1930s that God got tired of seeing people like us die from the disease. And I'm convinced that God used Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob and Eddie and Dr. Silkworth and Dr. Jung and a fellow named Roland Hazard, and a fellow named Hank Parkhurst, and all the rest of the first 100, to put this thing together so that people like you and I who choose not to die can find a way to live. Now, if God was doing that in the 1930s, there's no reason to believe he still wouldn't be doing it today. All the first 100 are dead now. And somebody has to carry this thing on. And I don't believe there's an alcoholic in this room tonight that has not been chosen by God to do a job. I think God knows that in order for us to help another alcoholic that we must first suffer our disease. 95% of us are going to die never even knowing we're alcoholic. Five percent of us may stumble into an AA meeting. Less than two percent of us are going to recover from the disease. And I think those that recover, God has touched them. And I think he saved their life while they're drinking so that he can use them to work with other people. There's not an alcoholic in this room tonight that shouldn't already be dead. Some of us two or three times and we woke up the next morning and we said, my, wasn't we lucky last night? I don't think luck had anything to do with it. I think God saved us. And then when God got ready to use us, when he knew that we had learned what he needed for us to learn, then he 
remove the obsession to drink. As you see, I didn't do anything any different than Floyd did. I just went to meetings like he did. And somewhere, somehow, one day, by the grace of God, I lost the obsession to drink. God removed it. I'm convinced today that God will not allow a vacuum or a void or a blank spot in the mind of a human being. He does not allow it anywhere else in the universe. Everything is always rushing in to fill up those voids. I'm convinced today that when God removed the obsession to drink from my mind, that he replaced it with an obsession to stay sober. And I'm convinced today that if I'll work just one half as hard at staying sober, as I did at drinking, that I'll never have to take another drink as long as I live. When I went to that first AA meeting, these people made me feel real good. They stuck out their hands and they said, hello, Charlie, how are you? They said, man, we're glad to see you. Have you been having a little trouble with alcohol? And I said, yes, I have, and I believe that's the reason I'm here, to find out what to do about it. And they told me what to do about it. One fellow said, we believe that you ought to go to four, five, six, seven, eight, eight meetings a week. He said, we find that's imperative for newcomers and not a bad idea for old-timers, but surely a must for newcomers. Another one picked up this book and he handed it to me and he said, if you'll take this book and do what it says to do, you'll never have to take another drink of alcohol the rest of your life if you don't want to drink. And another fellow, I'll never forget him, he was an old, bald-headed old boot. Uh, you see him at every AA meeting, I see some here tonight. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, Son, now in those days I was a lot younger than I am now, he said, Son, someday you'll have to turn your will and your life over the care of God as you understand it, if you want to stay sober. Now these people didn't understand me. They didn't know that I had 45,000 chickens. They didn't know that I had 100 head of cattle. They didn't know that I had 30 sows. They didn't know that I had a 500 hog feeder operation. They didn't know that I had a red-headed wife and four kids and two bird dogs. And they didn't know that if you own all those things and you're trying to juggle them all, that you're going to have to stay home and get you rest. No way can you come to four, five, six, seven, eight, eight meetings a week. And I picked their big book up and I looked at it and I went to how it works and I read the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and I almost vomited. But the very first step said we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. I have never admitted I was powerless over anything in my life. And the second step said we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could be stored to sanity. And I said, don't tell me I'm crazy. Oh yeah, I do stupid things while drinking. But when I'm sober, I can conduct my business quite well. I am managing fine. Look at my 45,000 chickens. Look at my 100 head of cattle. And look at my 30 sows and my 500 hog feeder operation and tell me I'm crazy. Now if you're not powerless and you're not crazy, you don't need step three to turn your will and your life over to care of something you don't understand in the first place. 
and I said, I can't do that. And this old bald-headed pooch told me about God. He didn't need to tell me about God. I already knew about God. I'd heard about God, and I'd learned about God in the Baptist church when I was a kid growing up. And I'd found out about hellfire and brimstone. And I knew about going to hell for lying and cheating and stealing and drinking whiskey and committing adultery. And there's no way I'm going to deal with that kind of God. And I said, I can't do these things. But I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll come to your A meetings down here in Solomon Springs every Friday night, and I'll not miss a meeting, and I'll stay sober working this thing the way I want to, and if you don't believe me, you watch me. I'm getting ready.
stand on their public hands and do you anyway, what you've done in the past. Nobody could see me if I prayed, because there's nobody in this room if there is a time that I didn't see any lights I didn't feel as if a clean way. Me, I never had to take a little drink of alcohol at all. Now it's that hospital, now it's that day. And they had their hands sticking out and they said, hey, have you been having a little trouble yet? I didn't ask them what to do. And they didn't tell me what to do about it. I began to go to four, five, six, seven. I got out this book, the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is the book that Floyd wrote to me the first time. There's a physical craving in my body. But in series, I'm living in that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that nine people out of ten out I didn't know that the only difference I did not know that those of us had a physical allergy. Nor did I know that we're insurers. I did not know that the obsession of our Sunday I'll be able to drink success and make me believe it would be okay to drink. And then that would trigger the allergies. And then I would get drunk. I didn't know that this success that could only be taken away by power of the human power. I never bothered to read the doctor's opinion. I never bothered to read their story. I never bothered to read the religious solution. I never bothered to read more about alcoholism, which deals me with nothing but it. Most theologians try to prove that I will follow if God will be himself. Chapter 4 allowed me to re-understand. Chapter 4 allowed me to change from Hellfire and Greenstone is the first thing you have to do in high when you don't know what's wrong with you, and you don't understand about God, and you don't even know what he's trying to do. I had to choose between being powerful for alcohol or accept spiritual help as I think so. I looked home as soon as I made the decision that it would have little permanent effect. Three years after, at once, not 30 days later. Not six months or a year later, at once caused by extreme suffering, the faith and the of the things within myself that he started to find personal inventory. And I found these things within my mind that blocked me off from God. You see, God can't enter a mind that is still with Christ. And we have to find the Christ. And the resentments and the fears and the harms that I've done to other people are the Christ. And, and God can't get in there as long as that's in there. And my book told me how to look at my resentment, how to look at my fears, how to look at the harms I've done to other people, and it showed me how to get rid of those things. It actually shows me how to get rid of resentment. So get them out of my head. It shows me how to get rid of fear and get them out of my head. It shows me how to honestly look at what I've done to people and prepare myself to get rid of that guilt and that remorse. And if I can get the resentment and the fears and the guilt and the remorse out of my head, then God can come into my mind and begin to direct my mind. You see, God direct my will. My will is my mind. But I also made a decision to let God direct my life. And my life is nothing more than my actions. And my actions always follow the way I think. And if I keep on trying to think the way I always thought, I'll keep on acting the way I've always done. And I'll always... I found out in 25... Those character defects, those shortcomings, those faults, those mistakes, those personality traits. And 67, 67 showed me how to get rid of them. And 8 and 9 showed me how to get right with my fellow man. And for the first time in my life, I found out that the peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. Did you see in the first nine steps? 
this book that I have in front of me had put me back together like a human being supposed to be. Step one, two, and three got me right together. Four, five, six, and seven got me. Eight and nine got me right in And when you write in the spirit, in the mind, in the physical, sociological world, for the first time you see it and so at the same time. You see, that's why the promises come after seven. They don't come after three or four or five come after nine. And I got those promises. I begin to know some of those things at this time. Twice in the big book, Bill Wilson refers to a fourth dimension of existence. Talks about it in his story, about it in chapter two. If you write in all three dimensions at the end of step nine and you receive the promises, you think it can never get any better. But there is another dimension. And people today try to tell us that step 10, 11, and 12 are making steps. I don't believe that's true. If you look in the big book and read how to work step 10, it says you continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. That's step and it says, when these crop up, you ask God at once to remove them, and that's 6 and 7. And it says, then you then discuss them with someone immediately, and that's, and it says, you then make amends quickly if you can. Step 10 works as the big book says to work. It is a continual working of 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, which are the things that got me the promises in the first place. I defy anybody in this room tonight. To work step 10 as the big book Alcoholics Anonymous says to work it and stay the way you are. That's what maintenance is, is to keep you the way you are. You can't stay the way you are if you work 10 as the big book says to do it. You see, reading it off the wall, the instructions aren't up there on the wall, they're here in the book. Step 11 says sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood it. If I received the promises at the end of nine, I've made a conscious contact with God as I understand it. Step 11 tells me how to improve it. Step 11 tells me I've learned everything I've ever learned is through the five senses, sight, sound, feel, touch, etc. But it says there is a sixth sense of information. And if God dwells within every human being, and I believe he does, and if God has all knowledge and all power, and I think he does, then surely within ourselves we have the knowledge and the power to overcome any problem we could have if we could tap into that power. Step 11 gives me a series of little suggestions on how to develop a spiritual life and tap into that power. Thank God Bill Wilson didn't know anything about spirituality. Hell, if he'd have been a learned man in spirituality, he would have written clear over our heads. He didn't know anything about spirituality. He's a drunk, just like we are. And he tells us what to do at night, what to do in the morning, what to do with faced indecision, how to pray, and then a whole series of many suggestions. And I'll guarantee you, if you work 11, as the book says, you will develop a life of prayer and meditation. You will improve your conscious contact with God, and you will not stay the way you are. You just can't do that. Step 12 gives me that great promise, having had a spiritual awakening. No, that's the finest promise any human being can have. To tap into that unsuspected inner resource, to be able to use this God in our lives, to do those things we could never do before. Now, having had it, I'm charged with the responsibility, and that's to carry it to others. And there's only one message to carry. 
having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these times. That's the only message we know anything about. Some of us get to thinking we're healers. Some of us get to thinking we're marital advisors. Some of us try to advise in economics. Some of us even become marital advisors. I don't know any people in the world that screwed that up worse than we did. Yet we turn right around and start trying to advise other people on it. We know one thing, and we know one thing only, but I'm going to tell you something. We know it better than anybody in the world knows it. We know more about alcoholism than anybody alive because we've experienced it. And we know more about the recovery from the disease of alcoholism than anybody alive because we have experienced it. We are the professionals in the field of alcoholism. We are the experts. Don't ever let anybody make you think that's not right because we are the experts. And with what information we have gained through our practicing of alcoholism, through the information we have gained about recovery through this book, we have been given the privilege of averting death in countless thousands of people. I don't know very many people that's given that privilege, but you and I have been granted that privilege. I think we're the luckiest people alive. I think we have a way to develop a life that is better than 95% of the people in the world since its inception has ever seen or ever will see, because we've got the tools. Those people out there are sicker than hell. And they're going to go to the grave sick because they don't have the tools that we've got. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm an AA fundamentalist. You betcha I am. How about practicing principles in all my affairs? What are the principles? And how it works, Bill says, do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. What had he set down just before that statement? The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the preface to the 12 and 12, he says the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are a set of principles, spiritual in nature, which if practiced will expel the obsession to drink. In all of Bill's writings, any time I've ever seen him refer to the principles, it was in connection with the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, it's easy to practice them here. I love you, and you love me, and we're going to try not to hurt each other if we can keep from it. But what do I do when I walk out this door? I'm only in a, an hour or two a day. What do I do in my own home? Can I practice these principles there? Can I admit my powerlessness over my spouse? She don't like me to say it, but she's over 50 years old. And she's going to do what she damn well pleases. Can I realize the insanity in me trying to control her life? Can I make a decision to turn her will and her life over the care of God as I understand it? Can I inventory me and see what's within me that keeps me still trying to control her? Can I talk about that to another human being? Can I ask God to take those defects of character away? Can I make amends to her quickly when I've harmed her? You know, there's times I'm absolutely ashamed of me. There's times I treat strangers better than I treat my own wife. If I could practice these principles in my home with her, then I could be happy there 10, 12, 14 hours a day. How about with my children? Can I practice them there? 
Our oldest one is 35. The youngest one's 23. They're not going to listen to me anymore. Can I admit my powerlessness over them? Can I see the insanity in me trying to control them? Can I make the decision to turn them over? Can I inventory me and see what's within me that causes that? Can I have God take that away? Can I make amends to them quickly when I've harmed them? You know, if I can do that with my kids, I might have some form of decent relationship with them. But as long as I keep trying to run their lives, we've got no relationship at all. Two more hours a day, maybe I can be happy with them. How about on the job? Can I admit my powerlessness over my co-workers? Can I realize the insanity of fooling with them? If I could do that there, I could be happy another eight hours a day there. One more place. I'm down to about 23 hours a day now. How about in the supermarket checkout line? How about when I'm in the express lane, I've got three items, and a little old lady is pushed in front of me, and her whole damn basket's full of crap. Yeah, it takes them 30 minutes to run up her bill, and then she pulls out her coupons, and we've got to refigure the bill, and then she pulls out her checkbook, and then she very carefully writes the check, and then she has the audacity to stand there and balance her checkbook while I'm trying to get through it. Now, if I could practice some there, then I could be happy 24 hours a day. You see, the decision is mine. I no longer have the luxury of blaming it on her, on him, on God, on them, or anybody else. Since I know how to work my program according to this book, then I am responsible for what I do, what I say, and the way that I feel. This is the most awesome responsibility I've ever had in my life. And sometimes I don't like it, but it's up to me entirely to determine what my life will be. If I practice my program according to the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous, thank you all for letting Barbara and I be here.